0: Hey, I'm Christina from Columbus, Ohio, and I work in marketing and communication for the financial industry. I love listening to Compound because of the true impact stories have, the realness, the messiness, and the authenticity. The episodes and storytelling leave me with the desire and sheer need to draw closer to Jesus, seeking a deeper relationship with Him, and I hope you feel the same. Enjoy today's episode.
1: During the day, I'm out in the streets, um, what they call gang banging, causing trouble during the day. But at night, I was a computer hacker. But it led to some pretty serious situations. Our, Our entire group, it was about 30 or 40 of us that ended up starting to get raided by the FBI. And so all of our computers got seized. My dad's work computers that were here got seized. And they pretty much just took everything that we had
0: I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to Compelled, where we use gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Our last episode was with Susie Jacobson, and as a little girl, Susie lost everything that mattered to her—her home, her family, and her friends. But in her loneliness, she found one friend who would never leave her behind. Again, that's our previous episode with Susie Jacobson. This week, our guest is Mike Felch, whose search for identity, approval, and a place to belong drove him to a life of crime, burglary, violence, and computer hacking. However, through all of those experiences, God was placing people in Mike's life that would ultimately point him to the only true source of identity and belonging. So gather around, lean in, and join us for another compelling story from the kingdom of of God. So a little over a year ago, I was speaking at a conference in Florida and I had a little booth set up for Compelled in the exhibit hall, highlighting a few of our testimonies. And there were about 15,000 people at this conference. And I was in between talks, just hanging out at the booth. And I just so happened to strike up a conversation with another guy who was hanging out as well, waiting on his wife. And of course I told him about Compelled and he suddenly opened up about his own journey to the Lord. And of course it was Mike. We exchanged contact info, and then that was that. Fast forward to earlier this spring. I was going to be in Florida again, and on a whim, I called the phone number that I had saved for Mike, and he answered and immediately remembered who I was. And that is how this interview came about. We met at Mike's home close to Orlando, and Mike started with some details from his childhood. Third grade is
1: probably one of the the earliest memories that I have. So I think the story would really start with, um, you know, imagining a boy that was um, in third grade with really thick glasses and just completely different way of thinking. And being the new kid at school, looking the way that I did, looking different and thinking differently, uh, there was a lot of rejection that came from that. There was a lot of jokes and, and bullying that actually started um, early on in my life. So I remember the first time kind of experiencing that rejection. I was on, on the playground and walking across this wood bridge. And I remember getting too close to uh, one of the boys and him turning around and just punching me right in the face. And so that that feeling over and over it was is where I think the story would, where my story really started. A little while later, I remember there was a head lice outbreak that happened. All of the kids in the class had to go through and get their hair checked. And and because I was the new kid, I was the one that brought it to the class. That's what the kids said. That's what the kids said. Oh, it was, that's what they said. But it was more than that. They actually held up their, their folders. I remember walking down the hallway and they would hold up their folders to their head so that they didn't get lice from me. And so it was this idea that being the new kid, looking a certain way, it was a lot of pushback. And it was the, it was the earliest days that I could remember the rejection and the loneliness and the pain that kind of came from that. I mean, the challenge of that, you know, it's, is not knowing how to deal with that. I didn't express what I was going through with my parents. Um, we didn't really have that close relationship where I felt open to be able to discuss what I was experiencing. And so I just kind of held it all in. I don't think they took it as serious. They they knew that it was going on, but it was always, well, they don't mean no harm. They don't mean to be that way. I don't think they understood the seriousness of it. Um, and it's not that they wouldn't wanted to have intervened more. I think part
0: of it was I didn't feel like I had an open relationship with them where I could share more. At that time, did you have any recollections of thinking about Christianity or faith or anything like that at all?
1: My family came from a Catholic background, so... Um, my mom and her side of the family all went to like a Catholic church. And then my dad, I remember him telling, he didn't want to get involved with church because he was forced into Catholic, um, school up until he was 18. And, and they both like, um, there was a lot of sexual abuse within the the Catholic church that affected my family. Very, like very much destroyed my family. And so they both kind of opposed it, although they got married in the Catholic church. They got remarried in the Catholic church, I mean. But it was more, I think, to appease my grandparents uh, on my dad's side. But yeah, nothing, I mean, I, I heard about Jesus. I knew that there was this these stories of Jesus, but I was, uh, I didn't believe, like I wasn't into anything with regard to church. Um, so yeah, not
0: much. In the midst of rejection from peers and without a strong relationship with his parents to lean on or a faith in the Lord, Mike soon found another outlet and place where he could finally fit in and find that sense of belonging and identity that he craved.
1: Third, fourth, and fifth grade, I got involved with the local skating rink. So the local skating rink was where everybody went to skate, and we would just hang out there a couple times a week. And despite the fact that I was experiencing a lot of the stuff that I was experiencing at school, I, f- I started to long to be accepted. I wanted to feel that I was a part of something. And and I got pretty good at, at roller skating. Like, that was just something that came natural to me. And, and with that, uh, there was also this idea of when you get good at the skating rink and you start becoming that people want to hang out with you And so there was this this cool feeling of I want to feel accepted I was wrestling to try to achieve that by My appearance or how I skated or the roller skates that I had so I was always trying to use different uh, Attributes of my life to make people think certain of me whether it was a good thing or whether it was a bad thing um, I really wanted to, to be wanted And at the skating rink, a lot of people would uh, they would do what they call couple skate. So, you know, couple skate with girls. And so I see everybody around and they're with a girl and I wanted that. So the skating rink was this idea that it brought this pivotal moment in my life on multiple different facets, but one being I met my first girlfriend there. And so that feeling of wanting to be wanted was finally being met. I finally felt that that moment of wow, like I, I have someone that that cares for me, yeah. So first girlfriend, I don't really recall how that broke up. Like I'm sure if you asked her, she would say that like I broke her heart. At that time, I probably did. Um, but that that girl ended up going. We went our separate ways. So I don't remember. It was just like a, a skating rink girlfriend. I don't remember how you how you used to break up. Um, but uh, we just went separate ways and we lost contact. But it was also the time where I met all of the troublemakers that would have a huge influence on my life moving in a different direction. And the troublemakers and I, we would hang out all the time throughout the week. And sometimes we'd hang out skateboarding because skateboarding at that time was a huge part of my life as well. Uh, so skateboarding and then at the skating rink with these troublemakers led to moving into this realm of gang activity where there was a lot of fighting. So we would meet up and we would fight different groups or they would have fight at the skating rink and we'd get kicked out. Um, And so there was just this constant reputation that I was seeking. I wanted people to finally be afraid of me, but it was really, I think, rooted in this insecurity of who I really was. I knew that I had been bullied for so long that now it was starting to come out in the way that I was treating people. And so it was like this bubble that just kind of burst that led to this idea of respect and, and fear. And so people for the first time would start kind of fearing us at the skating rink because they didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know if they could be around us without anything kind of ha- like popping off or happening where people would get hurt. And so there was this fear. I didn't have to worry about being bullied anymore. Like I finally felt that I was freed from being bullied because I was now that bully. And so my, my my life really took a drastic shift uh in that direction. So the local gang that we were a part of was called Folk Nation. So it was a a, a pretty wide known gang around the country. Our our set was a localized set, so it wasn't as like crazy as Chicago and LA. Um, There were guns, there were violence, there was um, thefts. There were um, a couple sets of Crip that were local, but Folk and Crip had uh, a pretty strong um, united front together. They called it the eight ball. And it was this idea where Folk and Crip had each other's back. And then they both kind of collaborated against the blood sets that were local, but the blood sets were so small at the time that it wasn't that... It wasn't a big gang feud, so it wasn't it wasn't as extravagant as the movies and all of that. It was it was more a bunch of kids that came together that caused a lot of trouble, that grew up together, that ended up um, progressing into you know prison or juvenile prison or carrying guns and then fighting. And so it was just more of that side of it. My direction was more on the theft side. So at that same time, I got involved with a local car club called Crazy Minis. And so the car club, we would focus on rims and music and paint jobs and interior and car shows and it was more a glamorous look at my car people found their identity in their car and and so it was kind of built around that uh and so for me i i found that once again people would look at me in a certain light if i had the cool things if i had the cool car if i had the cool rims and i had the big loud music and and so for me, I just started to steal cars, steal rims, steal music. I wasn't obviously working and involved with the trouble. Uh, and that was, you know, kind of during the day. So during the day, I'm out in the streets, um, what they call gang banging, um, causing trouble during the day. But at night I was a computer hacker. So Was growing, that part
0: of your gang activity or completely no, separate? completely different. Like
1: it was a completely different identity, right? You can't be a nerd and a gang banger. Like I had to keep those separate. Nobody knew, uh, but I was, I grew up on the computers. My dad was a firmware engineer. So he was, I grew up with him reverse engineering my Nintendo games, for instance, and trying to dump the e and try to clone the games. And, and so I grew up in a household of, of hackers. So at night, I had got involved with an online gang, online group, really, is a hacker group. Um, and uh, the group was called Global Hell. And Global Hell was compromising government and college computers. And with the goal of leveraging those computer networks in order to wreak havoc on other online groups that were there at the time. Um, But it led to some pretty serious uh, situations. Our our entire group, it was about 30 or 40 of us that um, ended up starting to get raided by the FBI. And so my turn came and uh, me and a friend from um, another town over that I grew up with, we ended up getting raided by the FBI. All of our computers got seized. Uh, My dad's work computers that were here got seized. uh, And they pretty much just took everything that we had and I, and it just kind of led in a different path. So I had, I got hemmed up in two different directions, two different lifestyles that were going on at the same
0: time. Mike's search for identity and belonging had brought him to not one, but two completely separate lives of crime. A self-proclaimed gangbanger by day and a computer hacker by night. And along with the FBI raid on his hacking activity, Mike's daytime gang and their burglaries soon caught the attention of the local police.
1: I remember hanging out at a friend of mine's in the car club at his house at night. His neighbor and another guy from school came over and they were talking about stealing Rockford Fosgate speakers. Now Rockford Fosgate was the brand back then. That's what everybody wanted. I remember very vividly because it was, uh, it was a very pivotal night for, uh, for my life. I went with them and they wouldn't let me touch a vehicle. Like they would just let me go and I would be the watch out guy. I would stand in the road. All I had to do was just keep an eye out for cars that were coming while they went into the vehicles. And, uh, that night there were, I think five vehicles that got burglarized and, and it was, it was important because it was my first time ever going off and I wanted to fit in. I wanted what they were going after. And so going off with them and breaking into the vehicles, um, led to us eventually getting arrested on all of those five vehicles. That one night. That one night. And I think it might have been over two, two or three nights that week. But all of the vehicles that ended up being in that group of uh, burglaries that were committed, we ended up getting arrested for those charges. Now I was, I was 17 years old. It was a, uh, uh, and June 27th, 1999 was when the the crime occurred and during one of the burglaries it was inside of a garage and inside the garage uh, a firearm was stolen and so it led to a first degree felony and it was a punishable by life crime and it just so happened that our and On July 1st, 1999, they passed a law called 1020 life, use of the gun and you're done. And it was this idea that they have a minimum mandatory sentence that if you get charged with this and you get found guilty of this, you have a minimum sentence that the judge has to impose no matter what. Now it just so happens that was three days after I committed the crime, so it didn't fall under that 1020 life, but it was just that pivotal moment. That was actually the first time I broke into any vehicles being charged with it and then uh, eventually getting out and going back in and getting out. And there was a lot of that that was happening. It pretty much catapulted me into it because now I have no reason not to do it. And yeah, and I had to maintain that identity that people knew me as the person with this or the person that could do that, whether that be, you know, burglaries or fighting. And so I had to maintain that because that was my identity. That's how I identified myself. That's how I made people think of me. And so to not have that, I had nothing. When I got out, I was out on what they call pretrial release, and it was I was still going to court for my crimes, but I was able to be on the outside while I was going to court. I remember calling into work that night and saying I was sick, and then going to my car club meeting because we had car club meetings twice a week. Still just causing trouble, so it was a, it was a slow fade over a few months, and then still going back out and doing burglaries with my same co-defendants. The same guy. The same guys. But it was, a, it was, a, it was an important moment for me because uh, at that stage, I had been going to uh, JROTC, which was like the army in high school. Like It was like to prep you for the military. My whole goal was to be in intelligence in the army. That was what I really wanted to do. So being really strong in, in, on the computer science front and then in ROTC, that was my whole career. So three years into my high school, uh, I I pretty much destroyed my whole future. And it was at that moment where it was like, I'm facing these, this trouble over here. I have destroyed my opportunity on all of my investment in high school at this time uh, for being able to join the military and, and you lose hope. Like that was the moment where I remember like just something inside of me dying. It was like my future and my hope that I had completely just dissolved. So you kind of, I don't know if you ever got to the point where you completely lose hope, but that was like where, where it was. And so it, it was kind of easy to go into a negative direction at that stage, if that makes sense.
0: Even as Mike felt his future slipping into further darkness, God had placed a light ahead in Mike's path, a light he would encounter in a rather unusual place. More on that after the break you love Christian testimonies. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to Compelled. But imagine if you could enjoy Compelled stories from Christians throughout the ages, including those who've already passed away. Well, that's what our friends at YWAM Publishing are doing through their Christian Heroes book series by retelling the incredible stories of Christians like George Mueller, a man of prayer who ran an orphanage for 10,000 children in England who trusted God to miraculously provide food and shelter for those orphans, sometimes on a daily basis. Or Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was murdered by the Aka tribe in Ecuador, but chose to forgive and move in with the tribe to share the gospel with them. Or Brother Andrew, who during the height of the Cold War smuggled Bibles to Christians behind the Iron Curtain, all under the noses of Communist border guards who could have imprisoned him for life or worse. These are the types of stories that YWAM Publishing is printing, and their books are written for kids ages 10 and above, but frankly, adults love them too. They've published 50 of these biographies so far, and we just partnered with YWAM Publishing to bring you five of my favorite stories. These are the Christians that have inspired my faith and millions of others for decades, which include the three testimonies I just mentioned, as well as Corey Ten Boom and Amy Carmichael. We're calling it the Compelled Christian Heroes Bundle, and I actually worked with YWAM to select these five specific stories, and they agreed to drop the price in half just for compelled listeners. So it's $30 and includes free U.S. shipping. To buy this bundle for yourself or to give to a friend, visit compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. That's the letters Y-W-A-M, compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. And trust me, if you love listening to stories on Compelled, you're going to love reading these stories too. As a teenager, I had so many friends whose lives were transformed by attending a Worldview Academy leadership camp. For many of them it was the highlight of their summer because it was such a spiritually engaging experience and today worldview academy's mission continues if you have a student between 13 to 18 and you care about equipping them with biblical truth so that they're prepared to stand firm and engage with the culture then worldview academy is what you're looking for worldview academy's week-long summer intensives cover topics in apologetics servant leadership and evangelism all while building deep friendships with like-minded students. Your student will engage with 25 hours of interactive teaching, addressing questions like, How do I know that the Bible is true? Does God really exist? Who defines what is right or wrong? And what difference does that make in my life? Since 1996, over 42,000 students have called this one of the best weeks of their life, and with 18 summer intensives all across the country, there's certain to be one near you. Learn more and get 10% off your students' camp registration as a Compelled listener by using the promo code COMPELLED at worldview.org. Register for camp today at worldview.org while spots are still available. And remember to get 10% off using the promo code COMPELLED. Welcome back. Up to this point in Mike Felch's life, his search for identity and approval had led him into two separate criminal paths, as a gangbanger and a computer hacker. But now with the consequences of that lifestyle catching up with him, Mike was about to be confronted by something else. So I was in and out of
1: jail, I don't know how many times, a handful of times on the same charges, being in and out, walking into the adult jail not really sure what was going on. I just remember dragging my mat um, and a pillowcase full of like toilet paper and stuff into the dorm and looking around and seeing the overcrowdedness of the dorm, people sleeping on the floor underneath bunks because it was just overcrowded. There was no open rooms. And I just pulled my mat up and, and found a bunk that I was going to sleep underneath. I remember a guy named Junior coming down um, from a room that was up on the second on the second balcony and Inviting me up to the church room. There was this church room upstairs. It was um, echo dorm room 203 I mean, you're walking into a place where you can't trust anybody Everybody's there because they've done something that violated their integrity. I mean, there's no trust that you could actually put out there I'm already on guard because I come from uh, this Lifestyle on the streets where you can't trust anybody anyway, and now I'm walking into this environment and someone approaches me like there must be an alternative motive. Like, why would you want to, like, what do I have to offer some toilet paper, like a pillowcase. And he would come down and he'd, he would just invite me up and say, Hey, we're going to have Bible study. You want to come up? You want to come up? You want to come up? And, and it was always, no, 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 I'm not getting down with that stuff. Like at this stage in my life, I'm, uh, I'm more of an agnostic. Like I've heard about Jesus with, I was telling you earlier with regard to the, the Catholic church and, and I've seen a little bit of religion from that aspect, but I, but I didn't embrace any of that. It was more, and so I don't say I was an atheist because I I think that's a little far-fetched. But I I was just, didn't know. Uh, And he wanted me to go up to this church room and the church room was gonna have, uh, they do these Bible studies uh, every day. Over time he was persistent, he kept on asking and then uh, they had an open open floor, I guess I would say, um, come open where someone had left and they had to open underneath the bunk and they asked if I wanted to move into the room, the church room, the church room. No, I'm not going to move into the church room. Why would I like, uh, but I eventually did. I ended up just kind of going up there and moving. I remember moving my, my mattress underneath the, the bunk and just kind of laying there and just, and I would just listen. And eventually, you know, hearing these Bible studies every day, I started to get involved a little bit more. And I started, he, I remember his name was Tyrone. Tyrone invited me into one of the Bible studies and I finally just kind of. Just kind of joined a little bit. I um, don't really recall like a, a big reason why, it was just kind of one of those, I guess I felt more comfortable about them. Um, but it was something cool, it was something unique that I was, I was witnessing kind of with the people that were in there. It was Junior who was there on armed trafficking charges and it was Tyrone who was there for like armed robberies. There was one, one pretty interesting moment when, uh, I'm pretty sure it was Tyrone, it was either Tyrone or another guy in there we were walking on the balcony, and it was two stories, and I just remember being overwhelmed looking at my charge, my charging dock, because my charging dock had 13 felonies, um, one of which was um, had the PBL next to it, which was the Punishable by Life, and F1, and and it was just overwhelming knowing that, you know, I got court coming up, I don't know what's gonna happen, I don't know if I'm gonna get out. I, I was wrestling with this, and as I was walking and talking, uh, I remember him saying something like, you're so caught up. You're so worried about facing a judge for these charges. You're so overwhelmed with this. But what about when you have to face God for the life that you've lived? And it was this moment where I realized that it was what I get now. I get the whole Jesus loves me thing. I get the whole Jesus died for me thing. It wasn't this this story that I heard or this thing that I would experience twice a year going to a, like a Catholic church. It was this idea that I've I've learned about Jesus in this church room over the last couple of weeks, and now what you're saying applies to me personally. And it was this this pivotal moment where it was like, oh, the weight of my lifestyle, the weight of who I had become, became apparent, and it was what Christ died for. Like when you when you contemplate the sin in your life in contrast to the Christ on the cross there's something about that, that just really resonated with me. It drove home with me for that moment. And it was the, it was really the moment where I accepted Christ, like where I could verbally confess and make Christ my, my, my savior. Um, and so that was, that was the moment that really had that breaking point for me. It was after that, uh, like Tyrone and junior and I would, we would fast our meals, which is weird in jail because everybody wants food and you wait for your next meal, but we would fast our meals and give them to, we would donate them to one of the guys in the, in the dorm. And we would spend that time praying and we're doing this in jail. And I just remembered this and remember Tyrone really just driving us. We need to do this. This is what we got to do. And, and just kind of doing it like not really thinking about it, but it was, Uh, we called it going to college, the Bible college. We were saying we were in Bible college. Um, and, uh, and so it was just kind of this, this thing that the church room did, um, kind of coming together. So I just remember that being that moment for me where I really understood Jesus dying for my sin.
0: It's in this church room locked up with other convicted felons and hearing the bible taught by fellow prisoners that mike discovered that true acceptance and belonging could only be found in jesus shortly after this time mike was released from jail but with the positive influences of the church room gone mike went right back to his old friends from the gang and he quickly found himself backsliding into old habits mike had been happy to make jesus his savior while in jail but he wasn't really interested in making him Lord, which would become very apparent when God would send a familiar face to confront him.
1: After I got out, my life went back to that same lifestyle. There wasn't really any life change. There was no fruit in my life. I mean, there were some actions that we kind of did, uh, but I really do believe at that, at that time, you know, it could have been jailhouse religion. And I remember like a month after I got out, I, I couldn't find my Bible. I brought a Bible out that I had gotten from within the dorm um, and I remember couldn't even find my bible and I remember going through my closet trying to find the bible and I couldn't even find it I don't even know where it was at I don't know where it went and uh and that was when I was like okay I'm just I'm I'm back into this old lifestyle I've I've fallen I started to, I was slipping and I knew I was slipping and I was hanging out with the wrong crowd again I remember getting back involved with the car clubs me and my co-defendant again meeting up and I remember the first night we went back to steal cars or steal some rims it was this adrenaline rush and it was this fear but it was this fun that we were pursuing that felt good even though it was really bad and it was this unhealthy good feeling i I don't i don't know really how to describe it i knew it was bad but it made me feel good and we pursued it and it was that night that just set things off where we were back into it i just remember that being that moment where now we're doing it again and i remember the the local police department were um, really trying to catch us. They knew that we were doing it. Uh, I don't know how they knew. It. I'm sure they, they're just good detectives, but they knew we were doing it and they were harassing the car club. They would come to our meetings and our meetups and our car shows and they would always show up and they would come and they want to check everybody's identity and they wanted to know where, where I was and I would hide or I'd run out the back before they pulled in. And um, I wasn't being arrested or questioned for anything it was just they were really zeroing in knowing that we were doing something and looking to get kind of caught up and i remember the car club telling us that we had to scrape so i had to scrape scrape my scrape your logo off the back window we could no longer have a logo representing the car club because it was bringing too much negative attention to the car club and um, despite the fact that they were causing trouble themselves it wasn't like we were all innocent here um and i remember having to scrape my logo my dad was getting pulled over because he had a the same color car as me even though we weren't even like together at this stage. Um, It was just kind of rough, uh, a rough, rough time. I ended up um, having Lakeland Police Department, the detective's crime detective, uh, he was a sergeant there, uh, really trying to pursue me. And, uh, and I didn't know it at the time and there's some, some cool stuff that kind of came from that but I remember he finally like rearrested me. We were I was at a, another gang member's house and um, and they came and they swarmed and they arrested us or they arrested me. And this was a, a, sometime later, a couple years later and I remember walking into the county jail again. At the time you go to this jail for like five days, it was the central jail and then they put you um, to uh, your more permanent location. And I remember walking in and seeing a very familiar face, Tyrone. You see, Tyrone had been sentenced to like 15 years, or I forget how long he was sentenced to, but he was sentenced to a long period of time. And he was back on an appeal from prison. And so when you come for an appeal, you have to go to court locally. So they, they move you from the prison camp that you're at to the local jail to go to court. And he was there again. And I walk in and he's, he looks at me with like this disappointed face. And just, just remember him saying something like, um, man, what you doing, man? You're fighting the wrong fight. What you doing, man? And it was just this, uh, this gut check where uh, like, now I'm right back to where I was. And Tyrone is right back where he was on this appeal. And it was mind blowing. We're in the same dorm. We're going through the same thing. I'm getting chills just even thinking about it. And God really used Tyrone in that time to really realign me and recalibrate me, like my life and my direction on, on God. And, um, And so I knew like it was at this stage, it was impossible for me to change on the outside um, without fully surrendering to Christ. And I remember getting out and uh, it didn't change anything. It realigned me for that time, but it didn't change anything again. So if you would have asked me at that stage, whether I was a Christian or not, um, I probably would have said yes. Uh, I think the problem was looking back at it. There was no, there was literally no life change. There was no repentance Um, There was no good fruit in my life that was happening. Um, I I didn't have any healing. I wasn't walking by any sort of faith in God and trusting him as my provider. I was simply just professing just really empty words. No lordship whatsoever. He was my savior. I made him my savior, but I'd never made him my lord. There was a complete separation
0: there. It was still me being the lord of my life. After Mike's next release, he wasn't really any different he was still the same guy and he had every intention of going right back to the same group of friends and pursuing the same lifestyle. And over the next two years, he was basically in and out multiple times for various things, but would always go back to the same set of troubled friends. And any thoughts he had had about finally following Jesus would just fall to the wayside.
1: It was a different different type of trouble. It wasn't really gang trouble. It was just more of the the, the local drug scene. Yeah, just had some really bad experiences in that. There was some gaps there uh, where I was on the run for a while. I had warrants and they were looking for me and I ended up getting picked up. And it's all kind of a a wash. It's really difficult to really remember because I think there was, I want to say like maybe 10 arrests for those charges total by that stage. Um, That includes like the violation of probation because I was on probation for a while and then I got sentenced to house arrest and I violated house arrest. So there was a lot of these weird, you know, violation charges where they kind of bring you back in and you go back through the whole process again. My family had already kind of went their own separate ways. So my parents went through a really bad divorce earlier when I first started getting into that trouble. Around 17 or 18 is when they started really having a rough, rough stage. And so my my sin with the pressures of their sin and my lifestyle and the pressures of their lifestyle and neither of us having Jesus really put a lot of weight of what I was going through on their marriage and really just destroyed it. So my mom and my brother and sister ended up moving off to Arizona and my dad kind of went into the streets and was homeless for a little while and lived with, um, just lived drug house to drug house, sleeping wherever he could, um, on drugs. And we lost the house. We lost the cars. We lost pretty much everything and and put a, a lot of a burden on my, my mom to get my siblings away from the trouble and so I obviously couldn't go with cause I was wrapped up in going to court and doing all that. So I, I was kind of left without family. And then the only friends that I have were trouble and I had no positive influences on my life and uh, just making really bad choice after bad choice. There was a time after I got out My co-defendant was with me, and there was a guy from school that had previously stolen something from him, and we ended up getting into our car, my car, and and driving down, and and that guy was behind us. And me, trying to be big and bad, pulled off the side of the road, blocked him off so he couldn't go anywhere. We jumped out, and we ran over to him. We were going to just hurt him. My co-defendant stayed back, and so it was just me by myself with him, and he pulled out a baseball bat. I didn't have anything, and I was by this point I would already I was already very aggressive, and and he turned around to run and he swung the bat at me twice and he shattered my elbow, my elbow was just just blew open, my arm was bleeding everywhere. We got back in my car, I didn't live, but like maybe five minutes down the road, we pull into the driveway, they they call the the ambulance or 911, and so we're sitting there, and I'm holding my elbow, and they come, they take me to the hospital. And when I was sitting behind the the curtain, they said I had a visitor and I, I didn't know who would know. This was all real time. This was all something that like, who would know that I have a visitor? Why would I have a visitor? And Tyrone walks in. See Tyrone one, his appeal was on the outside. Tyrone ended up driving by my house because he has like a, a lawn service or a tree service company. And he he remembered where I told him I lived. And he saw the ambulances there. He had stopped by to find out what went on and then saw that I was in the hospital and then came to Bartow and then walked in. I don't really recall what he was. I don't even remember the, the moment. I just remember him walking in and, and us talking and he's probably disappointed again, but he was probably smiling because if I know Tyrone, he's always always upbeat, always encouraging, always uh,
0: not, not condemning for what I was doing, but always trying to lift me out of that. Tyrone's random appearance by his hospital bedside shook up Mike, but it still wasn't enough to dissuade him from the path that he was on. But a couple of years later at age 24, Mike's life had pretty much hit rock bottom. A good friend had just been federally indicted for armed trafficking. He had other friends who had died from drug overdoses and violence. His family was a wreck, and Mike's life was pretty miserable. Something had to change. And maybe, just maybe, Jesus had some answers.
1: I just remember, like starting to remember the stuff about God. And I remember trying to, I had a, I, I got a Bible, actually I got a Bible from a guy who gave me his desk. He had to give me a desk and in the desk was a Bible. And I remember just reading the, kind of going through the Bible and thinking like, oh, I want to read this. I remember living at our house and there was a lot of drug activity that was coming um, with my roommates and, and other people that were, that were there. And I remember, trying to do a Bible study. And then there was like weed smoke everywhere. So you're kind of like trying to clear it out of the area in order to read. And and I just remember hitting the stage where I didn't want to go hang out with anybody anymore. I didn't want to go to the, to the local bars or go fight. And I didn't want to, anything to do with the drugs. And I just remember coming to this grip where I was so sick of life. Like I just, where I was at and who I was around and just didn't want it anymore. I just wanted to be done. I wanted to, but I didn't know how to get there. I didn't know what I was doing. And I remember being in in this room um, where this desk was at. And and I remember just crying out to God. Probably a lot of doubt was in my words. I'm, I'm sure of it because I don't even recall like being confident in what I was saying. But I just remember crying out, Lord, just like, if you're there, like you gotta, if you fix me, like I'm, I'm done. Like I'll, I'm done with all this. I don't wanna do this anymore and just being broken, like not drunk or not any of those things, just literally broken. And it's all I could describe it. I started to read my Bible more. Now I'm like, I'm wanting to read my Bible. And I remember talking to uh, one of my friends. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And he said, why don't you just move to Arizona? No, I'm never going to Arizona. That's where my family's at, but I'm never going out there. And uh, and I remember opening up and, and um, the Saul to Paul conversion. I remember that story, just reading it and going into the desert and leaving what you have behind and and him being blinded and being let out. And I felt like, yeah, you know what? Maybe this is what I need to do. Maybe I need to go to the desert. Maybe I need to go to Arizona. And and it was just this this super cool moment where I felt like finally I have like, maybe I have some direction. Maybe this is where I need to do. I don't know if it was really God. Looking back, I know it was God, but at the time, I don't really, I'm not processing it as like the Lord speaking to me. It was just this more kind of unique situation. I ended up going out to Arizona and it just, it changed everything.
0: This was a new season in Mike's life, one where he was truly repentant and ready to pursue the cross. And along with his renewed faith, this season would also bring back some more familiar faces from Mike's past, which you'll hear about right after the break. If you like to stay up to date with current events, then you'll especially appreciate another podcast I enjoy called The World and Everything in It. It's a daily news program about 30 minutes long, delivered every weekday morning by Christian journalists from around the world. And they aren't just rehashing the current headlines, they're actually doing investigative, boots on the ground journalism while providing biblical cultural analysis. I started listening to their show about five years ago when we first launched Compel, and since then, they've become one of my go to sources for understanding current events from a biblical perspective. But they pull no punches. In fact, they tell the facts just as they are, even when it requires sharing uncomfortable truths. Maybe that's why they're one of Apple Podcasts' top 100 news programs. Join me and thousands of other Christians from around the world who listen to The World and Everything in It. Just search for The World and Everything in It in your podcast app or visit WNG.org. Have you ever wondered why traditional math curriculums seem like they have a one-size-fits-all approach? Well, that's because they do. The curriculum writers are making assumptions about how quickly your child is progressing even if your child is actually struggling with a concept, which if left unchecked, can become a major hurdle to learning and hurt their confidence. That's one of the reasons why CTC Math exists. It's an adaptive online approach that automatically changes depending on your child's unique learning needs. By adapting to your student's pace, learning becomes not only more effective, but also more enjoyable. Can you imagine? No more tears about fractions. The interactive questions change in difficulty based on how your child is progressing, ensuring that they're challenged at the level that's right for them. Not too hard, not too easy. It's just like having a math tutor who knows exactly what they need, when they need it. And as a parent, you'll love the detailed reports. You'll get to see their progress in real time and celebrate their victories and understand their challenges. Ready to give your child's math education a major boost? Just visit ctcmath.com and sign up for a free trial and experience firsthand how personalized learning can transform your child's approach to math. Again, that's ctcmath.com. Welcome back to Compelled. Mike Felch was now fully committed to his relationship with Christ. Jesus wasn't just his savior, he was also his Lord. In November of 2005, Mike left his old friends in Florida and moved to Phoenix, Arizona. His mom was there along with some other family members, but for the most part, he didn't really know anyone else there. But Mike began to see God replace his old unhealthy relationships with new friends and new community. And through these relationships, Mike began to develop his true identity in Christ and a sense of belonging in God's family. So I'm out there, I get plugged in at the local technology company that most of my
1: family that's out there worked at. And so it was the first time my career started to get like going and redeemed, like my skill sets were finally being put to use in like a normal environment, like a corporation. And I remember uh, being invited to this church event that was not too far from where I was at by someone on, on MySpace. And it was this um this church that started out of an a- ASU ministry. It was all people my age. So it was super cool. And it was this unique environment. I'd never been to a church like that. And it was just getting connected with them. And they were all mostly like pastor's kids. So really good people, genuinely loving each other, never like stolen anything in their life, lived a really good quality life. And then you got me coming into this where it's like, I'm leaving all of this baggage and leaving all of this stuff behind and I'm getting out there. I I still wore like baggy clothes and I had gold teeth and, and they didn't know what to do with me. They just loved me. Like they invited me and they started discipling us like twice a week. We would meet with them. Um, and it was just this really, I got thrown into a solid group of people that, would be there for you and it was unique because when i first started following christ right before i moved out there everybody pushed me away because now it's conditional now i'm a bible thumper now i'm I'm trying to be holier than thou is what they would say and because i was i was talking about god a lot not wanting to do what they were wanting to do a lot. And so it started to kind of ostracize me anyway. So it was just kind of cool to go, go from one group that rejected me for no longer being a part of what they were being a part of to a group that accepted me into what they were being a part of just because of what Jesus done for their life. And they yeah. started being an example to me. And the Lord just consumed me. Like my old ways were broken. I was being transformed. I, I was falling in love with Jesus. I was reading daily, doing my devotionals putting a big focus on my relationship with him. It wasn't like about this whole going through the church motions. Like I I lived a fake life for so many years that I didn't want to be a fake Christian. I didn't want to be like a Christian that just goes through the Christian things, but I didn't want that to be me. I didn't, I wanted to be just in love with Jesus and let him do whatever he's doing in my life, wherever it's at. In that group, like there was a, like a lot of people that we were hanging out with at, at the church and they were they were married though, right? So you had the pastor and his wife and then their children were married and they were, he was like the assistant pastor and uh, we had a couple other couples there that were either dating and about to get married or were already married and it was like once again, me like I'm here. and so um, I'm wanting that. I'm wanting to I'm wanting all that the Lord has and and I'm you know just wanting to see what he has for me. does he have anything for me? And I remember praying about it, praying about it, praying about it. And I'm being at work one day and my phone going off and we had like those old school phones. They didn't have like the smartphones that we had now, but you had like a little web browser on the phone. It was like this little flip phone. And I remember opening it up and seeing I had a MySpace message and I I clicked on the message and these phones were like, the LCD screens were like horrible. And I could make out a picture and I knew who it was. I could recognize it. And I was like blood rushing and urgency. Like I want to, I want to open the message, but then like, I'm also kind of scared to open the message. Like, I don't, I don't know. It was just this weird mixed emotion that I I remember feeling. And, uh, and I knew who it was and I, and I clicked on it and I opened it up and it was this girl from Florida, uh, that, that I had known from a long time ago. And we, so we started talking and, and, um, and the girl I recognized. I had tried to find her, um, previously, like two or three different times and I'm pretty savvy with computers yet I couldn't even find her. Uh, and so it was her, she sent this message and, um, uh, she wanted to come visit and she was going to come out to Arizona after a while we were talking and staying up and just talking all night and we're connecting like you never believe. And she wants to come visit, but she says, before I come out there, you need to make sure that you buy a pair of skates <laughs> every time, dude. Well, uh, it was my first girlfriend, Angela, from the skating rink that I, had, that I had finally felt acceptance
0: from early on in my life. It was her. In a crazy twist, Mike's first girlfriend from the skating rink we heard about at the beginning of the episode was reaching out to him at the very moment when he was asking God about the future and marriage and what that might mean. But was this from God or was this a temptation from his past trying to draw him back to his old life? Mike wasn't sure, but he was sure hopeful.
1: I encouraged her to get back involved with church. So she started going to church and she was going through some rough times of her own. She was her story was playing out. So she starts going to this church and she gets baptized and she's reading on her own daily, and you're starting to see the fruit of like a relationship with God brewing in her life. And I'm on guard, right? Because I don't want like, we got to be careful now. Like we're living two separate lives and with the Lord and we got to be careful. So she comes out there. She ends up staying with my brother and his wife. Got to set up boundaries, set up the boundaries. And so psh, I bought some skates. She came out. We went skating. We just, we kicked it off. And then she ended up moving out there. And then sure enough, we started praying and then we started dating. And then we started, we, we knew right off the bat that like, we're not just dating. We're We're jumping straight into like a courtship. And so we're going through pre counseling. We want to prepare because I'm bringing baggage. I'm bringing a lot of baggage. She has her own you know, baggage that nowhere near what I'm bringing in. But that led to um, an interesting start. Praise God for the pre counseling because coming from my background, some of the biggest hangups that I had that I had to get rid of was my anger. Still very much, you know, I'm following the Lord. I'm on fire, but I still... It's a constant redemption as I'm going through life. And while I'm saved, the Lord is continually transforming me and realizing just how far from him I really am, that we all really are, that we have to pursue that. Yeah. So we kicked it off and then we didn't waste no time. Like we got married that same year and I introduced a lot of just trouble into the marriage, very selfish, not knowing how to be selfless, not knowing how to have a relationship and think about the other person. It was still all about me. It was all about you know what I wanted and my ways, and a lot of damage that was there. And, and there was a lot of fighting, a lot of Type A personalities just feuding. Her way is the right way, my way is the right way, clashing. My unresolved anger issues and not getting the healing still that I'm needing. I'm still walking through the healing. There's a lot of that that was still still very present for the for years in our marriage and her wanting to deal with the problems. Like she's a problem solver. She wants, when there's a problem, we got to fix that now here and now me, I'm like, nope, we're p- pushing away. I'm re- not engaging in that conversation and a lot of lying and just a lot of deceit that I would have towards her. And it hurt our marriage significantly. But the the key here was that it was her rootedness in God that genuinely brought us back together and united. And we would have fights where I would sleep on the couch for a week, went and talk to her as a Christian. And then we go to church. And on Sunday, she goes down for the altar call and she's praying and crying her eyes out to God at the foot of the cross in church. And I'm just like standing around like, I what am I supposed to do? Like, am I supposed to like fake the funk and go up there and act like everything's all right? But I, I wanted to her to at least feel supported because I got everybody looking at me when she's down there crying, I'm just standing back and not doing anything about it. So I go down there and just kind of like act like I'm, I'm consoling her knowing that I haven't talked to her in six days. God would just unite us at that moment, but it wasn't because of me It was because of her genuineness and her genuine relationship with the Lord and seeking out healing from the pain that I'm causing and the pride that I have still that would happen. It was her sacrifice. It was her love and her patience through all of these trials. And it was like, she's laying down her entire life at the foot of the cross that reunited us. It was God using her and her commitment to him to win me over despite the fact that like, I know better, despite the fact that I'm going through this, like I'm wrestling with these, you know, the pride, the selfishness, the sin ultimately that I brought into the marriage that she's crying out that, that, that reunited us. And it was her example of being a Christian ultimately on how to live her life as a
0: Christian that won me over. When Mike first met Angela in the skating rink, all those years ago, he had no idea what God had in store for their lives. In fact, at that point, He wasn't even sure if he believed that there was a God. Yet through all the years of crime, the empty pursuit of identity and belonging and time apart, God was preparing both Angela and Mike for each other to build a life and faith together, but in God's perfect timing, not their own. And as Mike has just mentioned, the path wasn't always easy, but it was worth it. And what a stark contrast from the old friends and old habits he used to have. As our interview came to a close, Mike had one more story to share. It took place about 10 years ago in 2012. Mike and Angela had moved back to Florida and were plugged in with their local church and helping out in ministry when Mike received an unexpected phone call. At this stage, my wife
1: and I are we're doing high school ministry. I got a phone call on a number that I didn't recognize. And the guy was from the church that I was going to at the time. And he wanted to know if I was interested in being a part of a prison ministry. It wasn't the first meeting. I think it was the second meeting. Well, it was either the first meeting or second meeting. We got together and the leader, the, one that got, the guy that had called me, before he started, he said he wanted to talk to me. And so he pulls me aside and he's like, you're not gonna believe this. And I'm like, what's going on? What did I do? What's like, I know I got a criminal background. Like, can I not go into the prison? Like what, a lot of stuff's going through my head. He's like, you're not gonna believe this. And I said, okay, what's up? He looks at me, he's like, I'm Miles Watson. And I'm like, okay, I don't know. that, didn't, that At the time didn't ring a bell. And he's like, I was the property crimes detective over Lakeland Police Department. I was a sergeant over property crimes that was out pursuing you for your charges. Like that was me. And it was like this moment where I look back at that, at that moment, and I already knew that it was the Lord pursuing me through Tyrone, through the church room. I had all of these moments of my arrest that was God pursuing me. That's what the whole thing was about. I know that now. And I, I'm, I'm looking at Miles and he knows that because his entire career was, yeah, he was a law enforcement, but he did it for the Lord's glory. Everything that he would do, he would do with the utmost integrity. And he wanted to honor the Lord with his ministry and so we just embraced, it was this moment where we both knew, we, we both seen two different sides of the story, but we both knew that it was both the Lord pursuing me and, and the Lord using him to pursue me that we just embraced. It was just this awesome celebratory moment, um, that really just connected us. It was super cool. Um, and so we got to go in the prison united as a united front, which is actually a really cool testimony. Because in prison, people don't like law enforcement. In fact, a lot of people that are involved in the prison ministry don't want people to know that they're law enforcement because it sets up a barrier. Like it, it sets up this thing uh, where you kind of get rejected by the inmates a lot, but we got to go in as a united front. And at this time too, I had reached out to Tyrone because I'm involved going back into the prison. Like, of course I want Tyrone to go back. We used to do church together in, when we were incarcerated and we called Junior because Junior was out at this time. And when Junior got involved, so it was Junior and Tyrone and me and Miles, and we go into the prison. And it was the most fascinating experience ever to be able to stand in front of, I think it was 42 guys arm in arm and arm in arm, sharing how the Lord has turned our hearts towards each other. So uh, ex-felon, with the law enforcement, the dude that brought the ex-felon to come to know Jesus. And we're just sharing it all as a united front in the prison. Most amazing experience that I've ever had. Nothing that we could have ever done to put that together. 100% only because the Lord did what he did through people that wanted to surrender their life to kingdom business. And, um, and it was just this awesome experience. Uh, a lot of really great relationships that kind of came from that. And it was really the outflow of our relationship with the lord in the prison that made that happen ultimately
0: i appreciate you um, making the time to share this story what god's been doing in your life i'm eager to see how the lord continues to use in your story
1: yeah yeah no thanks for i mean you're doing the lord's work man
0: one of the things that really sticks out to me from mike's story is that the people who first shared the gospel with mike were not professional evangelists, a pastor, or even regular church people. It was his fellow jail inmates. But maybe we shouldn't be surprised since the shining light of the gospel is just as effective on the hard floor of the local jail as it is in the soft pews of our local churches. Mike's story isn't over yet. In fact, a lot has come full circle. Mike is now a highly sought after computer penetration tester which basically means that he's a computer hacker, but for the good guys. And among other things, he's had the opportunity to train law enforcement, the military, and even the Navy SEALs about information security, and was even invited by the Department of Defense to hack the Pentagon. But one of the things that makes Mike the most excited is using his platform as an information security researcher to share the gospel with fellow computer nerds. And in case you are wondering, Mike's dad is no longer homeless. In fact, he just came to know the Lord a couple years ago and is on fire for Jesus. And actually he works alongside Mike in the computer security industry. And in a crazy twist, the governor of Florida actually pardoned Mike from his crimes last summer. And Mike is no longer an ex-felon. His slate has been wiped clean. In fact, in the state's eyes, It's as though he never committed a crime in the first place. And uh, there's a serious parallel with the gospel right there, isn't there? If you'd like to engage further with Mike, then head over to our show notes at compelledpodcast.com and we'll include links to Mike's website and Twitter account. If you know someone who should hear this episode, please take a minute and share it with them. Maybe they're going through a struggle right now. Maybe they have a child that's gone wayward. But know this, if God can redeem Mike's life, he can redeem their life too. And by the way, wasn't it cool in Mike's story how God kept on sending this one inmate, Tyrone, in the most random moments and context to continue convicting and prodding Mike away from his old path of sin? Well, there's actually more to that story. And in fact, the same day that I interviewed Mike, I also interviewed Tyrone. And we will be releasing Tyrone's testimony in our very next episode. And if you stick around to the end of our credits, you can actually hear a sneak peek from that story. But here's a quick synopsis. From childhood, Tyrone was a habitual thief. If he wanted something and didn't have it, he would just take it. And eventually, as an adult, Tyrone was sentenced to prison for multiple armed robberies. But as Tyrone was groping through the darkest moments of his life, there appeared a spark of hope. So just stay tuned to the end of the credits to hear that sneak peek. If you'd like to help create more stories just like today's, then please join Compelled as a one-time or monthly supporter. And as our way of thanks, monthly supporters get access to each of our episodes one week early. Get started at compelledpodcast.com and click donate. Today's episode was edited by Will Jackson, story editing by Nathan Webster, sound engineering by Zach Fowler, and our associate producer is my beautiful wife, Sarah Hastings. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and you've been listening to Compelled. We'll be back with another compelling story two weeks from now. We'll see you then.
1: I remember a robbery. When we kicked the door in, it was a guy there waiting with a gun and shooting at us. We're not running. We're shooting back like a little Western movies, Wild Wild West. So basically, he ran out. But because of all the gunplay, we had to leave because we don't know who called the police.
0: One last thing before I go. If you'd like to meet up this year in 2024... I will actually be on the road for a few events, either speaking or exhibiting at some conferences. I am still nailing down all the details, but already I know that I'll be at the Texas Homeschool Convention in Fort Worth from April 18th through 20th, the other Texas Homeschool Convention in Houston from May 30th through June 1st, the Home Educators Association of Virginia Convention in Richmond from June 6th through 8th,